in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. If you've been keeping track, we are in the midst of a sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And um, here's why Paul is writing a letter to them. This is a, uh, a church that's near and dear to his heart because he started it. Almost like I started this one six years ago. Paul was on a missionary journey, his second missionary journey in Athens. Uh, in Athens. And then Acts chapter 18 tells us he left Athens hurriedly and then he ends up in the city of Corinth. He met uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. And having met them, immediately um, decided to stay there for a while. And uh, Corinth is uh, a place uh, that he, uh, the church at Corinth, rather, is a place that Paul holds dear because he stayed there for almost a year and a half ministering to them and sort of upstarting this church. Uh, it's also near and dear to his heart because after a few years of having left there, they're plagued with many problems. And so the problem that we'll, the issue that we'll talk about today is the third of several issues that he'll bring up when the, in the course of this letter. If you remember back in chapter 5, that was the first letter. It was another issue of sexual immorality. In this case, it was uh, a, uh, uh, a son who was being intimate with his, his mother-in-law. The second issue was the issue of, of, of church folk taking their problems, their issues, their legal stuff out into the civilian world, the, the secular uh, world, for them to adjudicate things. And Paul says, I mean, that shouldn't be. I mean, uh, you have the Spirit of God. Why would you take uh, your issues out into the world? Can't you do that within your own camp? And of course, this third issue here today, we're talking about uh, sex. Particularly, we're talking about um, sexual immorality. Um, Corinth was uh, a port city. It was a port city along a very important trade route, and with that kind of city, of course, you get the, you get the influx of people, you get the, the, the diversities of, of every kind, particularly in this case, the diversity of religion. Uh, you get corruption of varying sorts, and in the case of the, uh, the Corinthians, you get a lot of sexual immorality. Corinth was famous for the temple uh, called Afro, uh, the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty, fertility, and sexual love. And so this temple featured cult prostitutes. So if you visited the temple, then one of the things that you could experience as a visitor of this temple was uh, to engage with a prostitute there. It was common for the people in Corinth, if they just had a, like a neighborhood party, for the host of the party to provide prostitutes to please people as they would want to be pleased. It wasn't uncommon for men after a day's work. Say you're driving home from D.C., you just drive into a brothel, they didn't have cars, and visit with a prostitute. And this was a normal part of their society. And it was so normal that it had leaked into the church. 
In fact, perhaps it never even leaked out of the church for these people in Corinth. And that's why he's specifically addressing this, this issue, this specific, uh, specific issue of prostitution. But the overarching issue here and the one that we would say um, that, w- that w- would rightly apply to us is the issue of sexual immorality. And this is something that's not far from us. Uh, if you have your eyes open and your ears open, we're faced with these kinds of things on a daily basis. We live in a, a time and a culture, a day and age that's saturated with sexual indulgences and significant brokenness around the area of, of sexuality. And so, obviously, this, is, this, this sermon has a negative theme to it, but let me tack on to that right from the start that, um, I mean, th- that's not God's uh, view of sex. Paul isn't trying to be a joy killer here, and the Holy Spirit isn't uh, forcing Paul to be negative uh, as if God did not create uh, or create sex for us for uh, a very good purpose. Uh, the Bible is not against sexuality. God created it way back in creation uh, for his glory, for procreation, also for our enjoyment. The, the picture is in Genesis 1:27 uh, that God created us in his image and likeness and that he created this, uh, this means of intimacy where we would enjoy it enough that we would do it and procreate and have people who like us in our own image would also um, grow up to love and serve God. And so God had a purpose in it, not just for our enjoyment, but it includes our enjoyment. Sexuality should be seen as a gift given to us from God, and particularly when we submit to God and engage in it in the ways he's intended, it's a beautiful thing. Bringing, forth, uh, bringing both life and flourishing. Of course, the opposite is also true. When we are disobedient to God and we engage in it in ways that he hasn't prescribed in Scripture, then it's going to bring uh, brokenness. And we see that in our lives and we see that in our world. Uh, the Bible would say sex is an act of worship. We quoted this verse during our call to worship. Uh, Romans 12.1, here's what Paul says. I beseech you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, which is your spiritual worship. When Paul says worship, when the Bible says worship, it doesn't just mean singing, like the, the, the few minutes of singing that we did as we started our service. Uh, worship is for all of life, and the, the, the picture the Bible gives us about ourselves is that we are all worshipers, and we're worshiping all the time. We're either worshiping something or someone, and we're doing it all the time, and we never stop. One of my favorite authors and speakers is Paul Tripp, and Paul Tripp's recent book is called Sex in a Broken World, and I've been reading this book a little bit uh, this week, and so you're going to get a few uh, uh, quotes from Paul Tripp here today in my sermon. He says, in sex, you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, the worship of self, the worship of your sexual partner, or the worship of what you get out of sex. God designed you to be a worshiper. You don't put down your worship nature when you're having sex. And that leads us to a few points that Paul was making in, his, uh, in, 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 the, in the words of our text this morning. And the first is our sexual lives reveal who we worship. Our sexual lives reveal who we worship. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul here is quoting a slogan that the Corinthians were were fond of saying, all things are lawful for me. 
Uh, but he finishes, it out, finishes that off by saying, I'll not be dominated by anything because uh, this is an issue of freedom under the guise of, of their newfound Christian freedom. I'm free in Christ and therefore I can do anything. Paul is challenging um, the Corinthians that they're, they've bought into the same sins of the culture. In other words, they're using the excuse of being free in Christ to do whatever they want whenever the urge hits them. Whatever pleases me is what I'm going to do. That's what I want to engage in. And so in terms of their sexual, uh, sexual selves, they were, they were people that showed no inhibitions and no restraint in regards to what they were doing. And Paul basically says, uh, that's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom is, is not you doing whatever you want, when you want, when the urge hits you. It's having the power to do what pleases God that results in good to you and, to, and good to those that are around you. Christian freedom is, is not being a slave to sin and to your urges that you would have to respond to them every time they come up. Rather, it's being free to live a life of obedience to God. And so Paul says, we should not be dominated by anything. And we're being dominated, taken advantage of, used anytime we surrender our body to any form of sexual immorality. What is that? Sexual immorality is illicit sex. It is sex outside of God's design. And the Bible prescribes sex in its various forms uh, to be experienced in marriage. Marriage being the unity of a man and a woman, one man, one woman, and enduring covenant with each other. That's the Bible's view of marriage and sex. Sexuality is experienced inside of that marriage. Of course, if you are progressive in the progressive world that we live in, what I just said sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, who thinks those thoughts? In fact, most people in the world think that Christians have long, too long, had a reputation as sexually stuffy people. Y'all know any sexually stuffy Christians? I do, right? Christians can be sexually stuffy. Um, but Christians aren't sexually stuffy because the Bible is telling them to be sexually stuffy. Christians are sexually stuffy because they have chosen to be sexually stuffy. That's hard to say. The Bible actually does not put any restraints on our sexual selves. You only have to go to the Old Testament, like an Old Testament book, the Song of Songs, and um, many would, the misnomer is that that's a book about God and his love for his church. Actually, it's, it's the story of uh, a man and a woman, a, a husband and wife, and the passionate love that they have for each other. And if you read it right, it's very, it's very explicit. It, it, it goes beyond your average harlo, har, what's that, harlo, harlequin romance novel. It goes way beyond that. And so the Bible condones sex as a good thing created by God to be enjoyed freely. But here's the caveat. Uh, the Bible condones that, uh, that it, the context is a lasting commitment, the, the marriage of a husband and a wife. But here's the overarching point that Paul is making. He's like, sex has a potency not only to please, but to control. Sex has a stronger grip on us, in other words, than many of us know. And so there's several implications uh, that go along with what he's saying. And the first is, if you're married and you're fulfilling your sexual desires and urges outside of the marriage covenant, then you are committing sexual immorality. 
Our counselor, Nick Perrine from Heartsong, is going to be here next week preaching, and he's going to unpack chapter 7, which is all about marriage. And so I'm going to save any further comments regarding marriage to, to, to him next week. Here's a, another implication. If you're single and you're engaging in a sexually active lifestyle outside of marriage, uh, Paul will say in a couple verses down, you're hurting yourself because sexual sin is actually against your own body. The Bible confines sexual intimacy to marriage. And then for those who would say, I'm not necessarily sexually progressive, but I just want to, I just want to experience the physical pleasure, the emotional connection that sex affords. Here's what the Bible would say. Without an enduring commitment, you're simply looking to your own personal interests, which means you're worshiping yourself, which means you're, being, you're still being dominated, which means you're really not free. So your freedom has actually enslaved you. One, one uh, scholar says this. He says, free people serve. Free people help others. Free people need people less so they can love people more. But when anyone has sex outside of a lasting commitment, he or she is not loving the other person. He or she needs the other person to get something for himself or herself. And thus, they're not really free. Uh, the 60s and 70s in our country saw the wake of a sexual revolution. Uh, it's where, I mean, we cast off our clothes. Those, that's where the hippie movement came from. Um, I mean, Woodstock, it's, uh, that was the beginning of birth control in our country. And the guise of all of that was, let's, uh, let's cast off the restraints of the culture heretofore, and let's just be, be free to be ourselves, and you would think that when humanity decides to be free and just live life as it comes, that it would produce some kind of life, at least that, that's what it pretended to do. But we only have to look at our society now to see that, 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 that the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s actually didn't work, it backfired. Because now we have the Me Too movement, we have the rise of sexual addiction, we have tons of stats that tells us that our marriages aren't working, even in the church, because of many of these things. Rape and, uh, and sexual abuses are on the rise. Sexual harassment has become a norm in the workplace. And of course, this is probably the biggest one of, of them all. We have the, the prominence of the pornography industry, billions of dollars going into this industry, fueling our, our, our immorality in regards to sex. And so um, here's the question for us, a ref very important reflective question. Who is the master of you and your sexuality? What God or gods are you submitting to in regards to your sexual self. Here's the second thing Paul wants us to know. Your body was made for the Lord. Look at verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Uh, so uh, this stomach for the food and the food for stomach, that, that's another slogan that the Corinthians were fond of saying. And here's what the basic gist of it is. He's saying, you know, when, when, when they were saying, when I get hungry, I'm going to eat. And so why, uh, it makes sense when I have sexual desires, why would I not engage in them the same way I do when my stomach tells me that it's time for me to, to eat? And Paul, again, um, lovingly says to the Corinthian church, he says, that's wrong. Yes, your stomach is made for food and all the things that our stomach does to, to our food to, that it might nourish us. But then he'll equivocally say this, your body is not made for sexual immorality. Your body is made for the Lord. Your body is made to glorify God, to be a display of what God 
is like. And when the Corinthians say uh, what they're saying in regards to let me just satisfy my urges, what they're doing is insinuating that the body doesn't matter. And this is a theological uh, insinuation of sorts. And it's really anti-Christian. The word for it that I would use is it's Gnostic, and Gnosticism was a heresy that came to prominence in the third century, but it started leaking in the church as early as the mid-first century, and Paul will address this, this issue of Gnosticism in his letter to the church at Galatia. And so Gnosticism came uh, from the ideas of Plato, and Stoic philosophers caught hold of it, and then they birthed it into this idea that we're merely, merely souls, and that life has this long process of where at, at some point we're going to escape our bodies. We're going to leave our bodies, we'll exist in a disembodied state, and we'll live forever with God without a body. And so, of course, Gnosticism says your body is bad and your mind and your soul are, are good. And so when we rid ourselves of that body, then uh, we'll be our happiest, uh, most prosperous selves. And it makes sense that if you would believe this, this Gnostic heresy, then it wouldn't matter what you do to your body. If my body doesn't count, if there's no spiritual benefit to my body, I can do whatever I want to it because it's just like a house. And I mean, you guys are a transient people. And most of y'all have lived in like four or five or eight or nine houses, right? So uh, it's time for me to go, time for me to get a new house. That's how the Corinthians were thinking about their bodies. And Paul, again, says, no, no way. Your, your body is, your, your, you're not just a soul with a body, you are a body. In other words, he's uh, pronouncing a theology of our bodies. Your body is part of who you are, a major part of who you are. Paul says in verse 15, God raised the Lord, and he'll also raise us up by his power. Later in chapter 15, which is the chapter that he expounds on the, the resurrection, uh, he's going to say, uh, you're going to have a glorified body just like Jesus. A glorified body just like Jesus. And so as a Christian, the body that you have today is going to be resurrected and is it, we could say it's going to be new. Paul uses different terms in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it's imperishable, powerful, spiritual, glorious, but it's not gonna, it's, it's, it's going to be like a, a renewal of the same body. And so in that sense, Paul is saying, don't just cast aside your body because you're going to pick that thing back up. But here's the important thing in regards to this. Here's why Jesus had a body. Notice that Jesus lived life in a body. He was born into humanity, incarnated. He lived life in a body. Jesus had a body so he could live a perfect life in obedience to God that we should but can't. And ultimately that, we would offer, that he would offer us a righteousness that we can't earn in our own strength. And what's really important about that is that if Jesus didn't die on our cross for our sins in a body and then rise from the grave, with a body, then there's no one representing us from uh, before God. That means we have no advocate. We have no savior. And Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 15. We of all people are to be pitied because we have no hope. And so our bodies are important. And so here's what this means for us. It means that we can't walk around callously in our, ad in our attitude about our bodies. I think Paul wants us to understand you're going to be raised with a glorified body. And even though it's glorified, catch this, 
What you've done in that body affects eternity. I don't want to say more than I should here. I don't want to speak into the text because uh, the, the redemption of God is going to be a full redemption. He's going to right all the wrongs that have been um, created either to us or by us. And we really are going to live uh, in, in the sight of Jesus as, as holy people, purified before him. But there is something about that, that Paul is saying here about us honoring our bodies. Um, when I was a, a 16-year-old, my dad, he didn't give me a car, but he let me drive his car. And I shouldn't even say car, because it, it wasn't really a car. It was like a, a, a put-together kind of vehicle. It was a 69 VW Bug. It was, it was two-tone, not in a good way, in a bad way. It was like two-tone uh, with one color and rust and like a fade. It had rust on the bottom. It had two different size tower, tires. The inside was all rotted out. It had no stereo system. How can you be a 16-year-old driving your car to school and work with no, like, no sound at all? But that's the car my, ga- my dad gave me. Uh, and here's why my dad gave me that. I was 16 years old, and I was newly driving a car, and he knew that a brand, well, my dad couldn't afford a new car. I, I wouldn't give, well, I, my kids don't have cars. <laughs> I know some of you parents are willing to give your kids brand new cars, but very few of us thinks it's uh, smart to give someone who is not yet responsible for a brand new car a new car. So my dad gave me a jalopy, and, and, I, and I think of that because sometimes we think of that in regards to our, our bodies. All right, so it doesn't matter what I do with my body. At some point, I'm going like, to trade this joker in. I'm going to get an upgrade, right? So whatever your upgrade looks like, you know, in your body, that's what we sometimes uh, think about. Paul is, is telling us, um, this is wrong thinking. It's not like you can trade your, your body in. That's anti-gospel. There's a reality that what we do today affects forever. And we should at least be sober-minded about that. That what we do today, even in our bodies, though we're going to be glorified at some point, it matters. Perhaps there are some things that we can do in our body, one of those things being sexual immorality, that you just can't undo. And here's why. Here's the third thing Paul wants us to know. We are one with Christ. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one one with uh, one spirit with him. Here's the, the, the background of what Paul is, is saying. He says there's this profound soul connection that takes place through sexual relationships. Everyone who's ever engaged in any kind of sexual activity, either morally in the context of marriage between one man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage, or perhaps less than that, immorally, knows that sex is its not just a physical thing. There is a connection. Uh, Matt and, and Lauren Chandler wrote a book called The Mingling of Souls, and it captures this idea that there's a mingling of souls that goes on in, this, in, in sexual intimacy. And it changes the very nature of, of the relationship such that you can't engage in any kind of sexual intimacy and, walk, and, and not walk away different. I think it's impossible and anybody that tells you that you can be intimate with multiple partners and not be affected by that is actually lying to you. 
So Paul says in verse 16, the two will become one flesh. And he's reflecting, he's referring here to Genesis 2.24, one of the most important uh, verses in all the Bible. Genesis 2.24 is repeated uh, almost five times. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, or hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. And in this verse, we see a couple of things. Firstly, he's pronouncing this couple married. He's telling us about the, 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 the context and the confines of marriage. And, and notably, he's talking about this, this mystical union, the mystery of what happens both physically and spiritually when a man and woman come together. There's a, there's a mingling, there's an intertwining, not just of their bodies, but of their souls. This is the most that you can surrender yourself to anyone um, in any way. And of course, this doesn't, doesn't mean that when you're sexually intimate with, with just anybody that you're married to them, but there is a mingling of souls that happens in that oneness, even if you don't intend it to be that way. Uh, I was, uh, before we moved up here in 2012 to start the transit, I was on staff at Manor Church in North Carolina, and uh, one of my duties as a site pastor, as a campus pastor, was to, to counsel people. It's a large church, so I counsel a lot of people, and uh, I got to counsel a lot of couples that came to us um, wanting to get married. And so we did an intake interview, tell me about you, tell me about you, and uh, why do you all want to get married? And uh, typically, 99.9% of the time, and these are a lot of couples, most of them were already living together. Most of them were sexually active. And so uh, it was almost an epidemic. We, we thought, like, what is going on? I mean, it was, an, it was indicative of not just these people. We were in a military town, of course. They were coming all over, but it was indicative of the culture that we live in. I, I, have, I have married very few couples, and I've met a lot of people. I've married very few couples that weren't already living together and sexually intimate when they came to me wanting pre-marriage. And so here was here what we decided to do. Uh, typically, uh, a conservative evangelical church will have rules. All right, I, we ain't gonna, we're, not, we're pastors. We're not going to marry you. We're ordained under the sight of God to do what the Bible says. Uh, but we decided to come alongside these couples and we said, all right, so here, here's, here's what we would encourage you to do. Um, stop having sex. If you're living together, if it's monetarily possible, one of you move out. And if that's impossible, at least live in different bedrooms. And then let's, let's let the Lord redeem what, what you have so that you honor the Lord in your bodies and in your hearts as you're giving yourself, not just to each other, but to him. And a lot of times the challenge that we would get from these people is, was that, well, we love each other. And of course, I would say, I, I don't doubt your love, but here's the thing. If you love each other, then be committed enough that you honor each other, um, and don't just play friends with benefits, because that's what a lot of times couples are doing. They're playing friends with benefits, and the problem is in getting to pretend like you're married is you always have the option to walk out because you're not really married. There's nothing legally binding you. You can just pick your stuff up and leave if, if you get ticked off with the other person. And when we do this, we're also training ourselves to engage um, and sexual intimacy with someone, but always have the option on the back end to walk away when it's not going right. And then we learn, we train ourselves to do that in, in, in other ways as well. Uh, I'm not being satisfied by you, so I'm going to satisfy myself and my urges in some other way. And that's what happens when we, 
when we treat relationships like this casually. And, and skipping ahead, Paul says in verse 17, you're united with Christ, or if you're united with Christ, we're one with Christ. And so the rhetorical question here is, why would we ever take our bodies, which belong to Jesus, and he's given us his spirit to dwell in us, and um, commit any kind of act, even sexually, that violates the relationship that he's created with us? You don't have to answer that. I, 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 looked at, I wrote that verse down, and it's like, man, that hurts. Uh, hurts me, because I think about the life that I've lived. There's a, few, uh, there's a few of y'all in the room that grew up in Christian homes. You had Christian upbringing, Christian ethic, and you've never known a day that you did not love Jesus or at least weren't walking in his ways. But the other 90% of us, right, the other 90% of us uh, lived and did some things perhaps that we're not happy to talk about. And some of those have consequences that we cannot undo. And I'm not glorifying sin. I, I'm thanking Jesus that he forgives and saves and comes alongside us. And this reminds us that, you know, we do need salvation and we do need Jesus. One scholar says, Our bodies are the place where God has chosen to live and the very thing he has chosen to make a part of himself He's bound himself so tightly to us, even our bodies, because he wants to be with us. For us to be his and for him to be ours forever. No other religion would ever dare say anything even remotely close to that. Gods live in temples, not in human bodies. Gods keep their distance. They don't wrap themselves up with people, especially not their bodies. But this one does. Our bodies have tremendous value and they cannot be treated casually because they matter eternally. Again, this thought that what we do in our bodies actually does matter, matters into eternity. And anytime we engage in any kind of sexual activity, moral or immoral, we're actually engaging Christ in that activity. Someone once said, when you go in the bedroom and close the door, you don't leave Jesus outside. The, he's not standing in the hallway. When you open up your phone or your computer and you commit sexual immorality in those kinds of technological ways, Jesus is not in the closet or somewhere far removed from you. If you're a Christian, he's right there with you. And we bring him into that. Paul Tripp again once says, sexual sin is a horrific violation of my relationship with Christ. It is to love my pleasure so deeply that I'm willing to connect the Holy One to that which is unholy. That's like a step on your toes and say, ouch, kind of a sentence from Paul Tripp. And that's why Paul says never in verse 15. He says, come on, Christians, don't, don't do this. And this, should, again, should be a sobering thought that we would bring Jesus into our sin. We don't, um, we're not highlighting our sin, but here's what this gives us an opportunity to do. It gives us an opportunity to realize that we are actually one. If you're united with Christ, you're one with the one who can overcome sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so we do have one who now in us can help us overcome sin. And not only does Jesus sympathize with us in our weakness and struggle, he gives us the power to overcome it. Amen? Here's how Paul ends this, uh, this part of his letter, verse 19. He tells us that your body is owned by Jesus. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what Paul says. You're God's temple. And there's, there's good news in that. If you've read any part of the New Testament, you're going to come across the word temple. There are literally chapters upon chapters upon chapters talking about the temple in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a uh, very important motif about the temple in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Um, the, 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 the details about it, the design of it, the artifacts, the prescribed worship, the sacrifices, and the blood. Notice, notably, uh, in temple worship, there is a daily sacrifice and this very important one, uh, once-a-year sacrifice called the Day of Atonement, where, among other animals, uh, the priest would take a, an unblemished, innocent lamb, and it's, it would be sacrificed, and its blood would be used to cleanse both their, uh, cleanse both their handiwork, so all the artifacts in the, in the, in the tabernacle and the temple, but also sprinkle them on the, the holy artifacts in the Holy of Holies, the priest himself and the people. And the priest would do that so that they would be cleansed cleansed from their sin, and that God's holy presence would then fill the temple. And so here's why Paul brings up this idea of temple at the end of his, his discussion about this sexual immorality issue. He, he's saying, that's you, that you, when you come to Christ, are the temple. If you've been united with Jesus, not only has he come to dwell with you and in you, but he had to purify you first. How does he do that? When we trust in Jesus, he forgives us of our sin. The blood of Jesus shed from the cross by faith on the cross cleanses us from sin. So now God, by his spirit, comes to dwell with and in you. So that's the first thing. Not only that, he says, your body is a holy place. You guys ever go to any cathedrals or beautiful chapels or just uh, monuments that you think are just, just out of this world grand? Um, so, you know, I went to West Point and... Um, I didn't go to church a lot, but probably the, one of the grandest um, religious buildings that I've ever seen is the Cadet Chapel at West Point. Uh, another very uh, similar uh, building would be the National Cathedral here in D.C., although the, the West Point Chapel is, is a little bit older. And uh, when you walk into a place like that, you're supposed to be filled with awe. It's, it's this two-door Gothic kind of, kind of structure from the, the 17th, 18th centuries, and you're struck immediately by, by beauty and splendor and majesty. The story of God is told on stained glass windows throughout the facility. You have tapestries hanging from the wall, and of course you have pipe organs that when they, when they, when they flare up, it's like, it scares you at first, but it's grand, and you're meant to to be reminded that you're in the presence of, of something that's also grand. You're meant to find yourself in worship when you visit these places. And here's what Paul is saying in regards to this idea of temple. That's what your body is. He's saying uh, a building that's grand is one thing, but guess what God has designed your body for? He's designed it to be the house where his spirit will dwell with you and inside of you. But of course, he has to purify us first in order to do that, which means we, we should look at our bodies and, and not necessarily be in, in awe of our bodies, but we should be in awe of the God who chose us 
chose us to, to dwell in, to live in, that he would cleanse us and dwell in us because we're his temple. And may he lead us to not in any way want to destroy it. That's the importance of that. And so he says we're the temple. He says we're a holy place. Not only that, we've been purchased. That's what verse 20 says. You were bought with a price, and the value of your body is seen at the cross, where Jesus gave his life in exchange for you to purchase you out of slavery and be set free. So what's your worth, Transit Church? Is, it's that your body belongs to God. That's the value that you have before him. This idea of being bought with a price would bring any Jewish person's mind right back to the Old Testament story of, of Hosea and Gomer. Y'all ever read the, the minor uh, prophet book of Hosea? Very obscure book. God oftentimes used the prophets to act out um, the drama of their relationship with him. And this is one of those instances where God told a prophet to actually go do something that that prophet would not have done in normal circumstances. And so he tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute to act out the spiritual adultery that Israel had been living in regards to uh, their pursuit of other nations and other gods. And so the story is in Hosea 1 through 3. He commands Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. And so he marries her. They actually have kids. And even after marriage and a family, Gomer continues to unfaithfully give herself to other men until she eventually finds herself sold back into slavery. She's on the auction block to be sold back into slavery. This is chapter 3. And as she's standing there on this auction block, naked, probably shamed, people are touching her to decide if they want to, to buy her or not. And she hears a voice, and it says, 15 shekels. She recognizes the voice. Before she know it, she's already sold. But what she doesn't know is the person that she's sold to is actually her husband. Her husband has come obedient to the Lord, and he buys her back. And, and if you read Hosea, it doesn't say this, but I can only uh, help to think that her husband does this, that Hosea does this, that he embraces her and he says, come home, sweetie. This isn't where you belong. God has something else for you. This is not where you belong. He loves her with an eternal, faithful, covenantal love that never gives up. And God is saying the same thing to Israel. And obviously, by extension, he's saying the same thing to us, his people, that this is what I'm like. Faithful, covenantal, in my love to you. A love that's eternal and that will never give up. And you've prostituted yourself over and over again. I'll never give up on you because I love you and I've purchased you with my son's love. So come home. See, this picture of Hosea with Gomer is a picture of not just of Israel, but it's a picture of us when we are disobedient to the Lord, particularly in our sexual immorality, in our sexual lives. But here's the, here's the cool thing about this story. Thankfully, the one standing on the block isn't us, naked and shamed. It's Jesus. He's standing there in our place for us. We're not the ones being publicly shamed for our sin. Jesus is. The Gospels say that he was naked, that he was mocked, he was spat upon, that he was rejected. And the Father looks on Jesus the Son and says, you took what was theirs and made them mine. That's what he does for us. We've been bought with a price, and if we believe that, we'll respond in a way that Paul exhorts us to. And here's how he finishes his letter. 
didn't actually finish it this way, but I'm going to finish it this way. Verse 18, here's what he says. He says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee it. When you see what it costs Jesus to purchase you back out of slavery to sin, then perhaps you'll want to do, you'll want nothing to do with it. You'll want to run from it. Instead of running to it, you'll run from it. When you understand how much it costs God, not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you from and set you free from your sin. An Israelite, hearing Paul's words here, would be immediately reminded of, of, of Genesis chapter 47 through 50, and Joseph being enticed by Potiphar's wife, the seductress, as she tried to, I mean, get him to be sexually intimate with her. And what does he do? He fled to the point of, of leaving his clothes there. And of course, it got him put in, in prison, but he was faithful to the Lord in that instance. What did he do? He, he fled. Paul Tripp once again says, if you're to live out the sexual demand of your life in a way that God has called you to, to live, you're going to have to be uh, willing to do a lot of running. You have to be willing to run from thoughts that paint as beautiful what God has forbidden. You're going to have to run from the desire that at times seemed too powerful to resist. You're going to have to run from the seductive whisper of the enemy who will lure you in with his lies. You're going to have to run from situations and occasions that play, with, play to your weaknesses. You're going to have to run from pride, which tells you you're stronger than you really are. You're going to have to run from selfishness, which will allow you to use others for your own pleasure. You're going to have to run from things you'd love to participate in, but would expose you to things that you just can't handle. You're simply going to have to run from anything and any person and anywhere that's immoral in the eyes of your Savior. You have to be willing to run. Um, Transit Church, I think some of us need to learn how to run. And here's some things that I've been convicted of just this week. I think some of us need to run from our phones. And it's not even if you're committing sexual immorality with your phone. I just think our phones uh, have become a tool that dominate us as we don't put them down. Our eyes are never off of them. And if, and if, and if, that, if we have that kind of tool in our lives, uh, then perhaps we've become enslaved to them. And so Scripture encourages us to have a Sabbath once a week. What would it be like for us all, like together, have a phone Sabbath? Like, let's rest our eyes and our minds one day a week. Just put our phones down. Some of you perhaps need to put your, your computers in a place where when you're working on it, you're doing it in public so that the temptation perhaps goes away or that there's some accountability for yourself. Some of us need to ask ourselves, what would it look like for, for me to run or flee and take very seriously how much some of this stuff is dominating me? But of course, this is not just a call to monasticism, not a call to, to run from, but it's also a call to run to. And that's the note that Paul ends on. He says that we're to run. We're supposed to run in a way that we glorify God in our bodies. That's what he says in verse 20. Uh, glory is an important word in the Bible. It's the Greek word doxa, and it means weight. It's this, the sense of it is uh, the, the totality of all that, that God is. It's the, the true nature of God. When the true nature of God is made visible, it's, it's when the attributes of the invisible God are made visible through the, the person and work of Jesus, but also through you and me, through the church. And so here's what Paul's exhortation is. He says, glorify God in your bodies so that you would commit to living life, including your sexuality, so that when people see you, they see, they see what God is truly like. 
What would it be like for us to do that? That we would commit to so, such a thing? And let me end with this. I think the misnomer is that our sexuality is, uh, is all about us. I think what Paul's words here are saying is that sexuality is really not about us. It's about God. It's about God's glory and, and us as we are obedient to him, telling the story of Jesus, because what our bodies are his and we exist for him. And so let's pray this week and perhaps for a long time that we would live this out in our sexuality as well. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your word. And this was a hard one. Uh, I pray that uh, you would extend both your mercy and your grace to us, especially those uh, who these words um, perhaps have convicted, and for those feeling any condemnation, you remind us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, there are some things in uh, our lives that we that, that the consequences of sin cannot undo, but I'm grateful for 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, we thank you that you're a God that forgives and that you not only forgive, but you, you cleanse. You right our wrongs, you redeem us. And we do look long for that day that the pressures and the temptations of this life um, are no more. And we live in this, this place where uh, with our heart, soul, mind, and our bodies, we're worshiping you uh, in, in imperfection looking to you as the one who's saved us, cleansed us, purified us, and made us right with you. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen.